The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box, and here are your headlines. A flurry of high-stakes weekend diplomacy sees President Biden speak with both Russian President Putin and the Ukrainian leader Zelensky, as intelligence services warn a Russian invasion could be imminent. We believe, and have continued to believe now for uh, quite some time, uh, that Mr. Putin has enough military capability and enough options militarily before him that he could uh, conduct a, a major military action any day now. Over a dozen countries tell their citizens to leave Ukraine, including Germany, as Chancellor Olaf Scholz prepares to visit Kiev today with a message of Western unity. Ukraine can be sure that we will show it the solidarity it needs, just as we have in the past. Asian equities skid after Ukraine tensions spark late selling on Wall Street, with the main indices closing the week in the red. But crude surges to seven-year highs amid the geopolitical uncertainty. Meanwhile, Conservative candidate uh, Valerie Pekresa ramps up her bid to become the first female president of France, with her spokesman, Alexandre Dublanche, telling CNBC she would be an improvement on Emmanuel Macron. She has a very different way to govern uh, with Emmanuel Macron. She is not alone uh, on her island doing stuff. She, she does things with people, so it's a very important difference. U.S. President Joe Biden has told his Ukrainian counterpart, Volodymyr Zelensky, he will respond, quote, swiftly and decisively in the case of a Russian invasion. This came after a weekend of heightened tensions, with Washington claiming Russia is now prepared to invade at any time and could potentially act before the end of the Olympics this week. Diplomatic efforts seem to have fallen flat so far, despite both Biden and French President Emmanuel Macron holding separate phone calls with Russian President Vladimir Putin aimed at de-escalation. The White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Washington still believes Moscow would fabricate a pretext to launch an attack and that the placement of Russian forces points to imminent movement. Russian officials have denied the accusations and say the U.S. is causing, quote, hysteria. American Secretary of State Antony Blinken also spoke with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and repeated Washington's concerns. That diplomatic path remains open. The way for Moscow to show that it wants to pursue that path is simple. It should de-escalate rather than escalate. And it should not only talk about seeking a diplomatic outcome, but actually work toward one. Foreign Minister Lavrov said that uh, Russians are working on a response to the paper that we sent to Moscow more than two weeks ago, proposing concrete areas for discussion. It remains to be seen if they'll follow through on that, but if they do, We'll be ready to engage together with our allies and partners. I also underscored that if Moscow chooses the path of aggression and further invades Ukraine, the response from the United States and our allies will be swift, it will be united, it will be severe. 
Anthony Blinken. Well, U.S. futures this hour, let's just show you, we do have positive prints suggesting that we will get a positive start to the open for the Dow, the Nasdaq and the S&P. But we're a long way away from that happening at this stage. And uh, just to remind you, the message coming out of the Asian markets this hour is still very weak. Uh, as you can see, the Nikkei is off over 2% with the Hang Seng down over 1.5%. Uh, the uh, uh, head of government in Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, making some comments about the spike in COVID cases there uh, over the last 24 hours. Um, nobody, I think, thinks that Hong Kong is heading for a uh, Chinese-style lockdown of the type we saw in Wuhan. But clearly Beijing must be concerned about the rising case level in Hong Kong. The only positive print really we see on this board is Australia at the moment, which continues to benefit obviously from the uh, preponderance of miners in that index. Uh, Juliana, good morning to you. Jeff, good morning. Um, well, I think it's worth spending a little bit more time on what's happening at Ukraine, uh, at the Ukraine border and within Ukraine. More than a dozen countries now, including the U.S., the U.K., and Germany, have told their citizens to leave Ukraine as soon as possible, warning that a Russian invasion could be imminent. However, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has said repeated invasion warnings risks fueling fears and that nationwide panic would be, quote, the best friend of our enemies. Ukraine has called for a new round of talks with Russia and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe to discuss the military buildup. Ukraine's foreign minister tweeted on Sunday that the talks should take place within 48 hours as Russia has failed to respond to the, late, to the request under the Vienna document, a set of security agreements. The minister added that Russia should show it is serious about sticking to its OSCE commitments, which include military transparency. Let's get out to Sylvia for more. Sylvia, um, it's been really interesting to see the Ukrainian president resist um, agreeing with the characterization of the U.S. with regards to just how serious a threat uh, Russia poses at the moment. Talk us through um, the, the current stance of the Ukrainian government. It's definitely it. President Zelensky over the weekend was indeed urging for calm. And he did say that uh, panic at this moment in time would be their worst enemy, indeed suggesting that Ukraine is not in favor of decisions of the United States to evacuate staff from their, their Ukrainian embassy uh, in Kiev, as well as from other countries, as you mentioned, Germany and United Kingdom, also suggesting to their citizens in Ukraine to leave the country. But let's rewind to December for a moment, Juliana, because that was when, for the first time, the United States said that indeed Russia could invade Ukraine in early 2022. But that rhetoric has escalated and indeed the United States is now saying that the threat is imminent and this invasion could actually happen at any moment now. And if you ask me what has changed from a practical point of view, well, only two things, but they are quite big. First of all, we have Russian military drills taking place in Belarus and that would give Russia access to the northern part of Ukraine. And at the same time, 
time on Saturday, Ukraine also suggested, also said that Russia was blocking its access to the sea. Indeed, suggesting that Russia is also positioning itself in a way that it could easily access the southern part of the country. And so these movements are indeed quite significant because they do suggest that Ukraine is being blocked from all of its different borders. And at the same time, though, we had a conversation between the U.S. President Joe Biden and Ukrainian President Zelensky on Sunday. And both leaders did say that uh, irrespective of what's going on the ground at the moment, they are still trying to pursue diplomatic efforts to solve these tensions. But let's see whether or not that will be efficient over the coming days. We have, of course, the German Chancellor speaking with the Russian President uh, later this week as well. But let's see whether or not that will indeed be fruitful. From the United Kingdom, let's not forget as well that we had we heard over the weekend from the Defense Secretary Ben Wallace saying that there's a whiff of Munich in the air, suggesting once again that perhaps these diplomatic efforts will lead nowhere and indeed that Russia has already decided to evade Ukraine. It's important to bear in mind, though, that for its part, Russia keeps saying they has no plans to invade Ukraine. And indeed, these developments that we saw over the weekend are just hysteria. All right. Let me pick up, Sylvia. Thank you very much for that. Moving on, Ukraine has said it aims to keep its airspace open despite some airlines reviewing their schedules. The country has allocated over a half a billion euros to ensure the safety of flights and provide insurance for leasing companies. The Dutch carrier KLM had said it would be suspending flights to Ukraine, whilst Lufthansa said it may consider similar measures. The German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is expected to travel to Kiev today for a meeting with President Volodymyr Zelensky ahead of a trip to Moscow tomorrow to talk with Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Let's get out to Aneta for more on what we can expect from that meeting. Um, Aneta, we know what the German line has been so far. Do we see any change uh, from this meeting, potentially, when it comes to supplying arms or munitions to Ukraine? Uh, not so far. I don't think they Germany will move in that direction. What is most likely is that Berlin will provide more economic aid uh, to Ukraine, but I think going down the path of uh, weapon deliveries will not happen as of now. So what Olaf Scholz is aiming is to understand as well a little bit more uh, the motivation of Putin when he is going to meet him tomorrow, and um, he will try to uh, yeah, revive um, different formats of talks through the uh, Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe or as well as through the NATO-Russia Council. So he, uh, of course, wants to explore any kind of possibility to re-engage on a diplomatic terms with the Russian president and to find a diplomatic solution. But at the same time, his uh, aim is also to make pretty clear that there will be very tough sanctions in case Russia will invade um, the Ukraine again. So perhaps we take a listen of what he said over the weekend. It's necessary to be clear, to say clearly that in the event of military aggression against Ukraine that threatens its territorial integrity and its sovereignty, that will lead to tough responses and sanctions that we have carefully prepared and that we can make effective immediately, together with our allies in Europe and in NATO. 
So I guess it will be interesting to see whether uh, Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, will uh, use Nord Stream 2 as a proactive um, weapon in those talks and also really mention it because we clearly that was the this odd coincidence that when he went to the United States and met with U.S. President Biden that he did not use uh, or take this the the pipeline as a word in his mouth and i guess this was pretty much criticized as well here in germany that olaf scholz would not go down this path and would not show that united front with the united states so i guess um we'll we'll, we'll see what's going to happen but of course he also has to bring his party in um yet together and the spd seems to be still pretty much divided um how tough one should be uh, when it comes to russia and putin <coughs> Annette, thank you so much for breaking it down and setting the scene for this week's discussions. Um, to continue the conversation around um, what's happening uh, at the Ukraine border, Jan Friedrich Kalmorgan, founder and managing partner of Berlin Global Advisors, joins us now. Jan, thank you for being with us. Um, as our colleague Annette just outlined, Olaf Scholz has been uh, reluctant thus far to use Nord Stream 2 as a bargaining chip in the Ukraine situation. Why is that, do you think? And do you see that changing anytime soon? Hey, good morning. Good to be with you. Um, I think that Germany has shifted its position on Nord Stream 2 already. I think there's a very strong um, unity and resolve in the Western camp between the US, EU, Germany, France, UK on this. And while Scholz might have not mentioned Nord Stream 2 in public, I think it's very clear that Nord Stream 2 is on the table uh, when we talk about these tough sanctions, energy sanctions, financial sanctions, technology sanctions. Uh, even if uh, Olaf Scholz is um, implicitly on board with potentially using Nord Stream 2, it does seem pretty um, clear that the U.S. has really been the strongest here when it comes to the West's reaction to what's happening uh, at the border, even though the EU is geographically and economically closer to uh, Russia and closer to Ukraine. Um, what do you make of that and, and the, the, the role that the U.S. has taken in this matter? I think it's a pretty natural role to play. Um, a, um, the U.S. is obviously the leader nation within NATO um, with its strongest military might, that's no doubt. Um, and I also think it's tactically pretty um, smart uh, to have Biden take up a high-level conversation with Putin because at the end of the day, that's one of the aspirations Putin has to look eye to eye with the United States. Um, Putin doesn't take international organizations um, so serious like the OECD or the EU. He likes to talk bilaterally. He likes to be in the limelight. Um, he likes Macron visiting him. He appreciates Scholz visiting him, sees Germany as a key player in Europe. And the big prize is, of course, United States. And after um, Barack Obama called him a uh, regional power, um, I think uh, that uh, uh, he never wanted to be called that again. And I think it's a success for Putin already that he's now um, talking to heads of states and government uh, on a very frequent basis that we've seen this diplomatic uh, this shuttle diplomacy um, uh, in and out of Moscow uh, with Macron having been there. Now Schultz coming, Biden on the phone um, on a regular basis. So that's already a success for Putin. And why not give it to him? Um, to most Western observers, um, this crisis has been triggered by Russia moving its forces very close to the Ukrainian border. But I know you co-authored co a piece back in 2016 arguing that 
Actually, NATO needs to change its shape and structure and potentially also take a different name that would suggest maybe that it is not the same Cold War organisation that was set up to resist any attack from the East. Do you think that, in any sense, President Putin has legitimate gripe with the structure of uh, NATO at this point and the aspiration of Ukraine to join it? No, I don't think that at all. I think that it's very clear who's the aggressor, aggressor here. Um, Russia has amassed 100,000 troops uh, at the border of the Ukraine. Uh, Russia is conducting a war since 2014 in southwest Ukraine, and Russia has illegally occupied Crimea. So I don't think there can be any doubt who's the aggressor here and uh, uh, who is the defender. Um, I think that NATO um, is, uh, has never been set up to be an aggressive organization at all. I think that the um, uh, clear signal uh, has been since 1997, since the NATO-Russia founding act, that um, there is no intention to launch any aggression towards Russia. And I don't really think that Putin is afraid of NATO at all. I think this is a tactical stance. I think uh, it's an old legend that we promised never to expand, or Germany promised never to expand uh, towards uh, Eastern Europe. Um, I think that that is uh, all used as a, by Putin as a pretext um, as uh, attacks on Russian minorities in the Ukraine is used as a pretext or has been used in 2014 and could well be used again. So, in your opinion, even if Ukraine were to drop its uh, stated aspiration to join NATO, that would not de-escalate the situation at the moment? If NATO would uh, decide to um, declare anything official that Ukraine or other countries, we also talk about Sweden and Finland, that Putin wants to be guaranteed not to enter NATO, that would uh, undermine the credibility of the West uh, to a large degree. On the other hand, I think we can be a bit more relaxed from a Moscow perspective when I look to NATO expansion, because the status quo that we have since 2018, since um, Georgia um, and, and Ukraine last time discussed to join NATO, is a de facto moratorium. There is no discussion on the table that Ukraine uh, can uh, is going to join NATO. Um, and um, I think that Putin is just worsening the situation himself. So he creates a dilemma that hasn't been there before. There hasn't been no attention by NATO to do any military aggression uh, towards Russia. Um, it's, that's not in the DNA of NATO and that there's no interest in uh, anywhere in Europe and definitely not in the United States, in my view, uh, to have a military escalation anywhere in, in Eastern Europe. But now the situation, um, of course, forces the Western allies to rethink that and um, to be uh, to set up a very robust defense position in NATO, because the Poles and the Baltic Sea, Baltic sea countries, Romania, Bulgaria, are rightfully scared. Do you think this whole episode could ultimately bring the West closer together? Well, I think it already did. I think Putin deserved a transatlantic award um, for bringing us uh, closer together than ever since 1990. That's very clear resolve. I think there's uh, no piece of paper between the heads of states um, uh, and presidents Biden, Macron, Scholz, uh, the Poles. Uh, we all sing it from the same hymn sheet. I think there's a very coordinated, very robust uh, answer. Um, that's a sanctions piece that we mentioned, uh, which I think are very credible. Um, and there's also the willingness to increase NATO presence in NATO countries, of course, only if needed. And I think the US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Tony Blinken, Biden have made that also very clear. 
Well, let me ask you one further question related to that then, Jan Friedrich. Is there any chance that this may have changed sentiment sufficiently in Germany that we see a pivot away from the more peaceful stance we've seen in the country and that ultimately there is international agreement for a Germany that has a more militaristic posture? I wouldn't say militaristic posture. I think... uh the situation is very clearly um, seen as uh, dangerous, as um, significantly harming um, European peace interests. I think Germany will take a more robust position when it comes to any economic coercion issues. I think we will not deliver weaponry in the, to, towards the Ukraine. I agree with Annette. Um, but I think that uh, there is a markedly shift in the German attitude towards a more robust foreign policy. Uh, which includes um, our military commitments. I think there will be a stronger commitment to our NATO. Uh, to NATO, I think that Germany will not become a, a military superpower all of a sudden, um, also not under this government. But uh, more a more robust foreign policy um, is going to what we see, is what we're going to see in going forward in all over Europe, including in Germany. Um, Jan Friedrich, thank you for joining us this morning and sharing your thoughts with us. Jan Friedrich, Carl Morgan, founder and managing partner of Berlin Global Advisors. We're going to continue the conversation around the situation in Ukraine throughout the program. Coming up on this show, a red-hot inflation report and mounting tensions in Ukraine see U.S. markets close out the week firmly in the red. We'll dig into the details next. And for more on the fast-developing situation in Ukraine, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. So it was a uh, funnier week, wasn't it, last week? Uh, a, a week of two halves, if you like. It all started with the markets trending higher. And then, of course, we got two days of blind fury once we'd seen the inflation print. So ultimately, as we look at the way we closed out the week here, just a reminder to you, if you've got a bleary head from the weekend, it was a negative session. The Nasdaq Composite taking it on the chin, down two and three quarters of one percent with the S&P off one. Uh, 0.9%. Are we going to challenge those January lows then this week? We are some way away from the October lows, despite all the fear and dread around interest rate hikes. But it is just worth keeping in mind perhaps some of those more recent targets. Let's uh, flip the, the chart and let's just show you, uh, give you a sense of uh, what the well, that doesn't look great, does it? Um, so maybe we'll just move on and have a look at the Treasuries, which I think are more interesting at this point, perhaps, than the week I've just described for you. We'll have someone fill in some of those numbers with a crayon a little bit later on. So this is uh, the picture as far as the yield curve is concerned. And I think something that's been exercising a lot of um, the uh, economists is just where we get any sense of inversion between uh, various uh, yields. And as you look at this curve here, it is interesting 
interesting to see how flat we are now between the, the five year and the 10 year, one spot eight six, one spot nine four. And then down at the two year, we're actually at, at one and a half percent now here with the 30 year giving you a very modest 2.2%. And there's been a lot of chatter from members of the Federal Reserve Voting Committee. We should talk about some of these messages because I think the commentary from James Bullard rather worried people thinking that we might get a 50 basis point jump in rates at the March meeting. And then over the weekend, we had the San Francisco Fed president, Mary Daly, who has warned that, quote, abrupt and aggressive action by the Federal Reserve has historically had a more destabilizing effect on the market than positive. Daly said the most important thing is that Fed chair Jerome Powell takes a measured approach to fighting inflation, adding that while she supports a hike in March, it's too early to say how many times the Fed should hike interest rates this year. Well, I mentioned uh, Mr. Bullard, the St. Louis Fed president, is urging Chair Jerome Powell to hike rates faster and sooner, saying he'd like to see 100 basis points by the summer. Our US colleagues will be speaking exclusively to him today at 14.30 Central European time. Let's get a market view. Michael Purvis joins us, founder and CEO and chief market strategist at Tallbuck and Capital Advisors. Michael, good to see you this morning. Uh, what do you make of the commentary that we're getting, this running narrative now with Mary Daly suggesting it would be disruptive to markets to move too aggressively in March? Yeah, it's interesting to see how um, you know the chorus of voices from the Fed is, is hardly... Um, singing in tandem. Um, but I think that's probably a little bit by design. I, I can't help but wonder whether when Bullard goes out and and uh, particularly after that, uh, as you were just uh, mentioning, that very strong inflation print we got earlier in the week, um, you know, whether the, the, the Fed is kind of like airing out some uh, trial balloons and seeing how the markets receive them there um, and and sort of getting this look it's a very no it's a very robust inflation environment there's a lot of um, you know sort of volatility in all these inflation prints uh, some prints are very strong perhaps some will be less strong going forwards and the feds you know always wants to solve for, for credibility so I think you know having Bullard go out, you know, if it was by design, which I suspect it was, to go out and say, hey, like, you know, something really aggressive is happening, and then daily to sort of buffer that. I think that's sort of like, to me, it sounds like sort of a sensible way of addressing an extraordinarily um, confusing and uh, dynamic inflation environment, which is really what we're dealing with. There's just so many different factors at work within inflation. Um, there. It's not just about monetary policy, of course, it's about supply, it's about ESG driving up, uh, reinforcing higher crude prices, uh, uh, potentially reinforced by uh, 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 you know, very strong demand uh, globally and so forth. So there, it's a very complex uh, inflation picture uh, there. And I think the Fed needs to kind of like have that understood by the markets that, that they're going they, they need to be nimble both ways and if you remember on the FOMC that's you know you know he did the Powell did this humble but but nimble thing and I, I would argue to you that that later in the year we may see that nimbleness go the other way as well 
Michael, obviously the, the markets have been a little spooked um, by the uh, continued narrative around uh, faster and harder rate hikes, but uh, we're still not back to the, the January low uh, and we're a long way away from the October low. So there is some resilience in equity markets at the moment. What advice are you giving clients about how they should trade or protect portfolios? Well, look, I, I've been generally quite constructive on equities. Uh, you know, last year my price target was 4,800. This year I've been an unapologetic bull of 5,500 for the uh, for the end of the year, which from the end of last year would be another double digit uh, gain. Not nearly as impressive as what we just saw last year with a nearly 30% rise in the S&P 500. But you know, with with all that being said, look, we've just gone through a massive Fed pivot. And we've had a peak to trough of about 12%. And the equity tape is holding together really pretty darn well, I would suggest. Um, you know, obviously we had some, uh, you know, with this Ukrainian sort of tape bomb coming in on Friday there. Um, but look, when you have a, a Fed going from extraordinarily accommodative to a sort of a somewhat abrupt transition or pivot into a much more hawkish stance, that's going to engender volatility. It doesn't mean that the bull market is over by any stretch. It just means that we're sort of walking into a much more dynamic um, and uh, volatile situation. But when you step back and you think about the fact that the volatility in rates is mostly confined to the front of the cur front end of the curve, the back end really has been pretty stable. And we're still looking at nominal GDP that could be 7%, 8%, maybe 9% this year, which means earnings are going to be very, very strong this year. Um, and, and again, this earnings season we've just, we're just finishing up has posted, in many respects, better surprises than we saw in Q3, which was a very impressive season here. So sure, some you know, PEs need to adjust to higher back-end rates, but they're not that much higher rates, and the earnings are going to be very strong. And you know, how often do you have a 10-year yield at around 2% with nominal GDP at 8 or 9%? It's a pretty remarkable time. Um, but recognize that when the Fed goes through a big pivot, you're going to get volatility. And let's face it, we needed some volatility after last year's sort of relentless rally where every every little sell-off was so short-lived and so shallow. Michael, you mentioned the nervy price action we saw on Friday on the back of the escalation in tensions around the situation in Ukraine. What's the best way for investors to hedge against a further escalation? Sure. Well, I think the common, you know, the sort of default answer would be, oh, you know, load up on some S&P puts or something along those lines. Um, I actually don't think that's the right answer here. The VIX has been very rich. Uh, it's been rich really, you know, since throughout COVID, really. Uh, uh, there, the spread to realize volatility has is, is, is been high and so forth. And, and the, and the S&P 500, you know, just you know, went through some real volatility. So my preference is to go through different asset classes. Um, you know, it, let's hope the Ukrainian uh, situation doesn't deteriorate further, um, let alone, you know, go to something, you know, resembling a hot war. But it is, um, if that were to happen and you want to hedge that tail risk, um, I would recommend looking at long oil positions, 
long uh, gold positions, and also um, you know even um, getting long you know the two-year Treasury note, which has been massively sold off. Um, uh, you know for all these reasons with the you know with the new hiking trajectory, but I would argue more so. And what what I try to help my clients think through is is that you know. Anyone can go out and buy a bunch of protection, right? But if you if if you have to be very thoughtful about it, because there's a very good chance that the the tensions don't escalate in the Ukraine and that your S and P puts um, don't deteriorate. But I like oil, you know, regardless of Ukraine. I like gold long, regardless of Ukraine. And I think the, you know the the two year Treasury note probably got a little bit overdone there. So those are things that will. Uh, perform if the tensions escalate and they won't give up too much if they don't escalate. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.